at the Ministry of Defence, Cameron's cabinet reshuffle means a fresh team for Philip Hammond. President Obama wants four more years, but what are his plans for defence and foreign affairs? GCHQ is warning British business leaders cyber attacks could cost you billions. And what's life like for Muslim soldiers in the British Army? There are a lot of new faces at the Ministry of Defence this week following David Cameron's cabinet reshuffle. Nick Harvey, Peter Luff and Gerald Howarth are all out. And in come Andrew Murrison, Philip Dunn and Mark Francois. I'm joined by Professor Michael Clark, Director of the Royal United Services Institute and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Michael Clark, what do we know about these new characters then? Uh, not very much. Uh, they they don't have a lot of background in uh, in defence, uh, and like all new ministers, particularly in these sort of jobs, they're going to have to learn very quickly. I mean, that was the case actually for uh, Peter Luff uh, as uh, minister for procurement, but Nick Harvey and Gerald Howarth had I mean, a, a quite a lot more background on things. But uh, these new names, it's going to be a pretty steep learning curve, and I think it'll be a learning curve for the journalists because nobody knows what they think about any of these issues. Indeed, uh, although Andrew Morrison, Dr. Andrew Morrison. He was an author of Fighting Fit, a report on mental mm. health, wasn't he? And Marc Francois was in the TA and a military history fanatic, isn't he? Yeah, but we don't, we don't know what he believes politically on any of these things. That's the interesting part of it. Uh, Andrew Morrison's uh, medical background, I think, will be useful. Uh, it gives him credibility in an area which is important to the MOD. But again, uh, most of these ministers don't get um, issues coming at them which really play to their strengths. Uh, Christopher Lee, Andrew Roberson, now Minister of State, what will he bring to the team in his promotion? Well, I'm not sure he brings much to the team in his promotion because he's been there and he knows the routine and you know how to deal with the the psyche of, uh, let's say, the civil service in the defence ministry, which is unlike probably any other department. The other thing you have to remember about the defence ministry, which is important for any minister, especially a new minister, to get used to, it is the only department in the whole of Whitehall, maybe the Foreign Office being an exception, that has the end user actually as desk officers in the ministry. And so you get used to being in that sort of military atmosphere and you have to get used to the idea that people, sometimes the military, don't talk to you in the same way. The important thing that they've all got to realise is that there is an outside ministry uh, running the Ministry of Defence as well. You're talking uh, about money here. We're talking money, and that is the Chief Secretary of the Treasury's office. They will be keeping an eye. In fact, they would be deciding... The future, because we're guessing at the moment, or we've been told at the moment, that the Ministry of Defence will get an increase in defence spending between 1% and 2%, which they're banking on. Come 2014-15, when they're supposed to have this sort of money uh, online, it may well be economic dip, what's going on in the Eurozone, etc. They won't actually get that money. These new ministers have got to plan ahead to say, how do we get round this? How do we deal with the First Secretary's office, the Treasury's office, uh, etc.? That is the biggest task. It won't change defence policy, 
Um, there's only one thing that might change defence policy, and that who is running the Trident programme. Indeed, in the future. Yeah, yeah. Notably, in, uh, absence of Liberal Democrats now at the MOD. What does this mean, Michael Clark? Do you think when it comes to Trident, because we know they were very much in favour, made it condition of the coalition that the, a review was held into viable alternatives? Yes, uh, I mean that review can still go ahead, of course, because the Liberal Democrats have got the position that they want to offer at the next election, which will be distinctly different from the government's on this issue. They want to distance themselves, um, but it does mean that they don't have any insider influence now at the Ministry of Defence but you know the big decision on Trident is still going to be put off till the other side of the election so nothing has changed there and the fact that you know in a way the person who hasn't moved Philip Hammond Defence Secretary that buys this uh, very hard-nosed continuity in defence which the government is clearly very anxious to maintain and uh, I mean Christopher's absolutely right the, the the one thing that might change is the costings on Trident um, but that won't be until after the next election although there might be a lot of rumours about it and in a way I mean Nick Harvey leaving the Minister of Armed Forces role if he really believes in Lib Dem policy on Trident well he, now he does have a chance to argue argue the case more convincingly having been in the MOD being now outside of the, of the process when the Liberal Democrats really want to make a point on Trident as they will as the next election gets closer he's got a better position to do that from Christopher I'm just thinking with the, with the departure of Peter Loff uh, um, procurement and acquisition mm. absolutely crucial I mean did he blow it or whatever but that is a big change which has got to happen internally with the organisation of the the Defence Ministry and the minister who's responsible. uh, That's a hire or fire job, isn't it? Absolutely it is. Uh, And and, uh, the the importance of of that job can't be overstated at the moment because, frankly, most of us in the analysis business believe that the ministry is struggling with with acquisition issues. It's it's, it's got a new strategy, but there's a lot of of issues still to be resolved. Who would you recommend for that job, Michael Clark? Not easy. Uh, I mean, I'd I'd have left Peter Luff where he was because he's on top of the job now and he's built a lot of confidence. But you know, there, there you go. For political reasons, I suspect that it was felt that they needed a new face there to carry through what are going to be a very series of tough changes recommended by um, Bernard Gray uh, down at Abbey Wood in the Defence Equipment and Support role. Christopher, obviously no change at the top. Philip Hammond still the Defence Secretary. Do you think he had a big hand in choosing these people in his team? Well, he certainly had an influence in it because the, uh, the Prime Minister was quite clear. He's got enormous confidence. He's a safe pair of hands. Bernard Gray, by the way, down at Woolwich the guy that really understands procurement and things. Why, I mean, they missed a trick. Shove him into the House of Lords, make him Minister of Procurement. Um, At least he knows the wiring diagram of of the whole system. But poor old Peter Loff, off he's going, spend more time with his directorships, presumably. Michael Clark, (laughs) um, the big tasks ahead. Just talk what this team will have to deal with immediately. The immediate thing is to um, see through the Army 2020 uh, reforms, which are in the system now and which which are going to still be painful, coming down to 82,000. Um, dealing with the new equipment program, uh, the you know the introduction of the the F-35, the new uh, Type uh, 26s and so on. Th- seeing all that through, and just getting through the Syria crisis, the the effects of the Arab Spring as they affect the areas near to us, and within NATO, uh, lack of 
expenditure among our partners, the the lack of, of any real interest in defence issues among our European partners and the way that plays out for the United States. So it's not going to be a boring time to be in the MOD. Gentlemen, stay with us. So those are the people who will be shaping the future of defence in the UK, but who will be our commander-in-chief, as it were, when the new American president is chosen in November? Last week we assessed the implications of a Republican win for Mitt Romney. Today, what if Barack Obama got a second term in office? U.S. correspondent Simon Marks joins me now from the Democrat Convention in Charlotte in North Carolina. Hello to you, Simon. Uh, troops out of Iraq, the killing of Osama bin Laden, a new deal with Russia on nuclear disarmament. A lot has changed on Obama's watch, hasn't it? Yes, absolutely. And, of course, a pivot towards Asia, a fundamental strategy that is uh, driving uh, U.S. defense uh, policy in the United States at the moment, uh, with President Obama vowing to have two-thirds of American warships in the Asia-Pacific theater uh, by the end of the decade. All of that essentially up for grabs. And in the speech that he made to the convention last night, uh, Bill Clinton seized on the fact that Republicans, uh, should they be returned into office, should they retake control of the White House, were so intent on spending money on uh, pet projects uh, that would help line the pockets of their friends that when it came to defense spending, they were actually asking for $2 trillion, he asserted, $2 trillion more than the Pentagon is seeking with no idea of how they were going to spend that money. Now, I think Republicans uh, would take issue with many of those uh, suggestions by Bill Clinton, but it shows you where the battle lines are drawn. So what do you think are the most pressing foreign affairs issues? Well, without question, initially, of course, Afghanistan and the withdrawal there, how successful is that going to be, uh, given the issues that the United States and its Afghan allies have been encountering uh, over the last few months with uh, attacks by uh, Afghan troops and security officers on NATO forces? It's also, of course, not entirely clear that the word ally can be used to discuss President Hamid Karzai's government. So there's an enormous amount of uh, uncertainty, if you like, rolling the dice on the future of that particular country. But there are also questions in the minds of many of uh, the United States uh, regional partners and competitors in Asia about whether President Obama actually has the money to do everything that he has said he's going to be able to do uh, in the Asia-Pacific region to become uh, a viable counterpoint to China, uh, some kind of assistant to India in the region. Is the money going to be there can he actually live up to the pledges that he's made? Because if he can't, he's going to lose an enormous amount of face in a region where that concept's very important. Michael Clark, um, what do you think is the most pressing foreign policy issue at the moment? For the Americans, I think the uh, the Afghan war is now in the rearview mirror. It's it's interesting how little it features in electioneering. Although, of course, the candidates have got to have an issue uh, stand on it, but the the differences are really tactical. The bigger differences, I think, are in in uh, attitudes towards the Iranian crisis. And uh, I think Mitt Romney feels that he can make uh, some sort of uh, headway by appearing much tougher than Obama uh, on uh, Iran. And do you do you think a strike on Iran Iran is more likely under Romney than Obama? I think you'd have to say yes. Um, certainly an Israeli strike is more likely under a, a Romney presidency. But remember also, I mean, Romney you know, comes off the back of being a great pragmatist as governor of Massachusetts. He, was, he, he is and was a great pragmatist. He's moved towards a sort of an ultra-right um, appeal in order to, uh, to run this election. But his instincts are more pragmatic. And we've always got this problem that we take a lot of interest in American elections, but actually almost everything that is said in American elections has very little bearing on what 
what candidates really do when they get into the White House or, or stay in the White House. But undoubtedly, Iran is coming down the track at the next American president, whoever it is, uh, because that situation is going to get worse, not better. And the other one is China. Relations with China and the possibilities of a trade war with China um, are very real and would have a big effect on the American economy. So for, for me, the next two big issues for the president are Iran and China. Russia, which Romney talks about a lot, is not an issue. He's raised that specter from the past. Christopher, um, do you believe or how much do you think American for foreign policy will affect we conduct, the way we conduct our affairs looking ahead to the future? Well, we've got natural alliances. We've got alliances within NATO. We've got alliances with our transatlantic hopes that there is something called a special relationship, which there isn't in, until a situation arises. We've got to remember about foreign policy and defence policy, certainly in the United States, it is a long-term issue. It's not like sort of uh, bailing out a car company or a bank that you can fix according to the way the market markets are moving in, uh, throughout the world. Very long term. I suspect that whoever gets in, they will be setting foreign policy and defence issues that are so long term that they're ones which will concern or even actually have to be implemented by the next president, the one after the one they're about to elect. Simon Marks, what has Obama done to make the world a safer place in the last four years? And what do you think he's likely to do to that end if he's re-elected? Well, he's vowing continuity, but I think it is important to note that at this convention, and we're into the final stretch here with Barack Obama making his speech uh, in a few hours' time, there has been barely a word said about national security or defense. So uh, let's just bear in mind that the focus here and on the campaign trail is, as Michael was suggesting, uh, almost entirely on one issue, the economy, jobs, uh, and domestic issues where President Obama has, has to acknowledge uh, that he has not uh, completed the job that he was uh, elected to carry out. In the realm of foreign policy, Iran is clearly a bone of contention uh, between the Republicans and the Democrats. President Obama came into office suggesting that he could engage with the Iranians. That policy, the Republicans say, has demonstrably uh, failed to uh, make any progress. There is also the grave fear in Washington uh, about the Eurozone crisis and that Im the impact of that uh, on the American economy. Should Greece uh, pull out of the Eurozone after the November election, that could very rapidly become a foreign policy issue with enormous domestic implications that moves to the very top of President Obama's agenda. All right. Simon Marks at the Democrat Convention in Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks for your time today. Sit rep with Still to come, trouble on the streets of Belfast and what's it like to be a Muslim soldier in the British Army? PFBS Sit rep. Britain's intelligence community has warned senior business leaders to take the threat of cyber attacks more seriously. It's been estimated that hacking and other forms of computer crime are causing up to tens of billions of pounds of damage, as well as undermining confidence in online services. Experts at GCHQ are helping businesses fight the threat of cyber attacks through a new programme called Cyber Security for Business. Uh, Michael Clark, what do you make of all of this? This is a natural extension of the government's uh, cyber policy. Um, the policy which was arrived at uh, a couple of years ago was first of all directed at the, at the government, but there's only so much governments can do. And of course the bigger cyber threat is out there, not in government systems which can be protected in all sorts of ways, but in the commercial uh, environment. And there was, I think there's a general sense within the government that the commercial world was not taking this seriously enough. And what they mean by that is not that the cyber experts don't take it seriously enough, but cyber security never got to the 
the board level. It never got to the level of the CEO. The CEO would say, oh, give that to the security guys. That's quite low down the pecking order. And interestingly, the fact that Ian Lobben is speaking at this conference, and he's the director of GCHQ, Ian very seldom speaks in public. The fact that he is doing this to me, is rather an interesting symbol of the fact that the government wants to take this really seriously. And it wants the business community to take cybersecurity right up to board level because it is one of our real strengths in this country. <clears throat> in one of the um, polls, one of the uh, surveys that was, was reported today in the Times, Britain is second to Sweden uh, and the United States in its use of the Internet, in the importance of the Internet to its economy, second or third in, in, the, in the league out of 170-odd states. So it matters hugely to us that we are secure, and our security it isn't just a negative thing, it's a positive thing. If we are seen to be cyber-secure in the world, then that actually increases our competitiveness in world trade and, and commercial terms. So it's that's a, the message. It's an incredible statistic, isn't it? Second in the rankings mm. there of the use. Behind uh, Sweden. Yeah. Yeah. Christopher, <laughs> Um, why is the number of attacks? Is it simply because of the usage? Why is it, why is it climbing so high? Okay, it's, it's, it's dead simple. Um, technology is quite remarkable compared with what it was just last year. Um, and when you consider the, the, the use and how it's come into almost everything we do, take something which everybody listening will, will use, Google. Ten years ago, most people never heard of Google. Today it's a verb. And when you hear somebody like Jonathan Evans, who is the uh, Director General of MI5, saying the technology is uh, improving almost on a daily basis. But more interestingly, more cyber security IT hackers, either officially sitting in some sort of hut in China or, or in Whitehall or, where, or, or in Cheltenham or wherever it happens to be, there are more of those being trained at any time. The United States at the moment, within its own group, of, of investigating different sort of things like uh, uh, cyber, cyber security, is training 1,900% more than it was 10 years ago. Michael Clark, are the security services managing to turn some of these, uh, these hackers, these bad guys, that they're on our side? They, they do. They're, they're pretty good themselves. And Britain is actually pretty good at both cyber security and at hacking. We are ahead of the rest of the world in, many, uh, in terms of technology and some of our skills. Um, one of the problems, of course, is, is that we are ever more vulnerable. And um, I mean, criminals are using the Internet much more easily than we are. And one of the controversial issues we have now in the draft communications bill is that law enforcement agencies want more access to our cyber lives because they said the criminals are using this all the time they're getting ahead of us and now the law enforcement agencies need to need to pursue them through cyberspace but of course that raises a, a big civil liberties issue and, and the government's going to have a hard ride next year getting its draft communications bill into law because it raises this fundamental feeling that the, that the government is snooping on us. All right, Professor Michael Clark from the Royal United Services Institute. Thanks for joining us today. Tensions have been high this week in Northern Ireland, where there have been violent scenes on the streets of North Belfast. Scores of police officers were injured during three nights of serious rioting. But there's hope for a peaceful outcome after an unprecedented apology was made by a loyalist group. Alan Murray's an expert in Northern Ireland affairs and joins us from a studio in Belfast. Thanks for your time today, Alan. We haven't seen such violent scenes in Belfast for a long time. What has sparked this trouble? Well, essentially, it's a conflict between what are called the Loyal Orders, i.e. the Orange Order and the Royal Black Preceptory, and the Parades Commission. And that is a body which was set up to adjudicate on 
contentious parades. Now, there are not many of them each year. There maybe are two dozen, and it decides what arrangements should be in place, and that could mean anything from a reroute to simply a band not playing at a particular point in the parade. Now, there, there was an incident a couple of weeks ago. It resulted in a band causing offence to the Catholic Church, and that apology today from the Royal Black Preceptory was an apology for any offence caused, it said, to clergy and parishioners of St Patrick's Church. Will it make any difference? Well, it was described by a nationalist politician, Alden McGuinness, as a potential game-changer. And it was also welcomed by Sinn Féin's um, representative in North Belfast, uh, Jerry Kelly. And it's North Belfast where this particular issue resides at the moment. So those were good signs today that we got. But in another comment yesterday, uh, Jerry Kelly described the situation as dire. Uh, he said it was dire leading up to this big, big parade on the 29th of September, which is across Belfast, maybe 20,000 marchers plus thousands on the streets watching them to commemorate the signing of the Ulster Covenant. So we're not out of the woods. Christopher Lee, what's your take on all of this? I wonder, and Alan might think about this, I wonder if we've got something about identity here. And that is that most people across the water in, in, in Great Britain will turn around and say, I thought we fixed this. And clearly what we fixed was the greater picture. What is not fixed is the identity of a lot of people, how they feel about themselves. You know, the fact that you can play, knowing it will cause offence, uh, the wrong song, the wrong tune outside of a Catholic church is one of identity, what people think, what they think about themselves. Uh, some of them have got no other identity other than the difficulties. And in North Belfast anyway, certainly since I, when I worked there, there is a sense that the, the language is in these occasions is rarely moderate, and that becomes important in a community like Northern Ireland where people are so sensitive and so aware of the slightest thing that can escalate into the most terrible thing. In, and, and that's been the case since, probably since 1968. What do you think on this, Alan? Oh, I, I agree. North Belfast saw one-fifth of all the murder casualties in Northern Ireland occur and thousands of people injured. There are still around, I think it's 15 peace walls or gates that separate the two communities. So it's absolutely right that in this area a word or two words or the playing of a tune can result in a riot perhaps beginning to, to, to gather. And it is very difficult. It's, identity is one problem. Uh, another problem that we're hearing from the in individuals on the ground who are monitoring this in the unionist community is that the unionist community in that area feels that it hasn't got out of the peace process what people in the nationalist working class community got. Now, that may not be true, but it is a perception that is coming across from that community. And how much, Alan, do you think the economic situation in Northern Ireland is heightening tensions at the moment? Well, basically, we have no work for young people, really. Industries that provided that type of work have closed down. We're, you're getting more into the technology dimension of education and work, and many of these young people in nationalist and in unionist areas, have not got the skills to get those jobs and probably will not acquire the skills to get those jobs. So there is an education dimension here and a work dimension here. 
But, of course, the troubles on the streets, three nights of rioting, does not encourage people internationally to come to Northern Ireland to set up businesses if they are thinking of setting up a business. All right. Alan Murray in Belfast, thanks for your time today. This is BFBS Sit Rep. So what's it like to be a Muslim serving in the British Army? Well, a conference is underway looking at the issues faced by Muslim soldiers. It's been organised by Lieutenant Colonel Peter Stradins, who's head of Army Diversity. I spoke to him earlier and asked him what the conference was hoping to achieve. Well, the main aim for, well, not just this year's conference and not just the Muslim conference, because we have them for lots of different religions, is really to foster um, great team spirit. If you imagine the armed forces today, much like society, wider society, it's much more diverse. We've got every race, every religion, um, and that diversity is growing. That's reflected in the armed forces, and so consequently, any opportunity like this conference, where people get the chance to get together as a homogenous group, so in this case the Muslim, uh, the Muslim community, it's fantastic because it, it lets them see each other um, and experience, you know, share experiences, I suppose is what I'm trying to say, um, that, and, and understand both the positive things that have happened in the armed forces over recent years and also that some of the remaining challenges. And for my team, that's really important because it's only by identifying the challenges we can make people's lives even better than they are already. You mentioned the importance of the armed forces reflecting British society. How difficult is it to recruit, for example, Muslim soldiers? Um, it's to, to recruit people from a range of different communities. I wouldn't just say Muslim communities. Um, it does remain a challenge. I'll make you know there's no secret there. Um, the Secretary of State is very, very keen, and in his recent address at the Rusi conference, um, he stipulated the importance now that we place great emphasis on being more representative of the society we serve. That's what we're trying to do, and that really is, is part of the reason for running conferences such as this one. And what kind of issues come up, for example, at this particular conference? Well, it's early days yet because we, um, we're, we're just, just at the very beginning. Um, so the, the actual issues, we've yet to find out, but we do have some really good external speakers coming along from an organisation called Dialogue in Islam. Um, what that will do will provide an opportunity for people to, to really think about their personal experiences and balancing their religion and their beliefs um, with armed service in the armed forces. Um, because for some, you know, that does remain a challenge and there are, you know, there's plenty of help available. Um, you know, we've also got the endorsing authority, Muslim Council of Britain. You know, they help out in such matters as well. So, you know, there's a lot of positives to be had. You mentioned about balancing people's religion with service in the armed forces. How, for example, does the army incorporate things like Ramadan when a soldier is on operations? I'm pleased you've asked that because it's a good opportunity to let people know. Um, the best thing to do with something like Ramadan is to ask the soldier, is, is the simplest answer. Uh, my experience at the conference last year, uh, generally the Muslim soldier would say, if someone please just ask me, I'll give them the solution. Um, and often it's a very easy solution. It might be a very, very early breakfast or preparing meals at certain times or just conducting unit activity. You know, manage it very, very slightly and it can get rid of all the challenges. What's your ambition then for, for these conferences? How do you think they're going to help the way the armed forces operate? What they really do 
is, is satisfy, is part of our public sector equality duty, so we have a legal obligation to do this. Um, two of those are to advance and promote equality of opportunity. Conferences like this go a long way uh, in helping that. And also, the other duty is to foster good relations. Um, and you can imagine with um, you know, a, a nice gathering of people from across the armed forces, you know, men, women, you know, of different, different races, different colours, um, but all of one faith, that's fantastic for fostering good relations. And if you were to, to make some kind of a mission statement or a plea to those members that you're perhaps struggling to recruit in the various ethnic minorities, what would that be? I think the message is don't discount serving your nation in the armed forces. A lot of people think that it's, you know, it's not something that their communi- community can do. That's not right. Um, there is something there for everybody. There is a fantastic opportunity for everybody. And as we go on, we're now working on our website as well to make that abundantly clear that the armed forces is for everybody of every community. Lieutenant Colonel Peter Stradens, who's the head of Army Diversity, talking to me earlier. Christopher, what do you think about diversity conferences for the armed forces? Well, I suppose you've got to have them, and you're scheduled to have them now. But the one thing that's always missing from this is something which the Americans are now beginning to understand, uh, and that you've got to understand it within military terms. Islam is not simply a religion. It is a socio-economic society. And you've got to understand that before you can get anywhere near in understanding how you deal with people, how you live alongside people, etc. And how would that inform how you did, do deal with them within the army, Because you see example? it within every day, uh, that a person who is, who is devoted to, to, to Islam, it's not just a question of, well, he's got to pray five times a day, or he's got to wear a beard, or he hasn't got to wear a beard. It's nothing to do with that. It is the fact that you're mentally you're brought up to understand how you should behave far more. Now, that used to be the case in, 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 to some extent with you know, the muscular Christians in, 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 in the British forces at one time. It's no longer the case, and, and it's no longer the case in the British Isles generally, except among the uh, Islamic community, and that's very important to understand. Now, just before we go, time to mention the extradition to Libya for trial of Gaddafi's former head of intelligence, Abdullah al-Sanusi. Christopher, how important is this extradition? Well, one, it's very important because he's gone to Tripoli, he's gone to the Libyans, because the International uh, Criminal Court in The Hague, they want him. The French want him, and the French want him because they believe that he was behind the, uh, a bombing of a French airliner over Niger, when 170 people died. The other thing which is particularly interesting, apart from the fact that he's supposed to be involved in the Lockerbie thing in 1988, the bombing of an aircraft there, the most important thing is the stuff that's going to come out as a result of this, which will include how much was he involved in rendition, the CIA, the British uh, Secret Service, etc. But finally, what happens to him after his trial? Will he go to The Hague? Well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark, Christopher Lee, of course, and all our contributors. If you'd like to join the discussion, you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Do join us the same time next week. But from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now.